Well, good morning. If you weren't here at the beginning, my name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, thank you for gathering with us this morning. It's always a, a pleasure uh, to gather with the saints in worship, to, 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 to pray together, to sing together, to hear the word preached, to take communion together as we will in a few minutes. So thank you for joining us. I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn Galleria, uh, which means I'm a pastoral intern preparing to start a new Sojourn church, Lord willing, uh, here very soon. Uh, in the neighborhood called Brazewood Place, which is the southwest corner of the 610 Loop. Uh, and we're excited to be getting ready to start our neighborhood parish next week, which will be, yes. So we're so thankful. It's been a number of years that Lindsay uh, and I have been working, uh, walking in this direction. So now we're starting kind of the kernel of the core team. I'm kind of Anyway, it's kind of surreal. I don't really, uh, it's, it's interesting to think about what all of the preparation that's gone into and, and to see how God's doing it and, and actually putting it into action here next week. So we're excited to see what God's going to do. Um, we've been talking, if, you've, uh, if you're just joining us, we're in a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been working our way all the way through the book. Um, and we're just coming out of a series uh, through chapters 12 through 14 where we talked about the spiritual gifts and how God uses uh, the spiritual gifts to build his church together as one, to empower them in love and, 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 uh, and unity. And uh, we've been talking about, but even before that, I mean, it's, 1 Corinthians is a letter that talks about big thing after big thing after big thing after big thing. Um, and where we are in the book is we're getting ready to close this letter. Um, a concern uh, that I think the Apostle Paul has for the church in Corinth and that's appropriate for us to have for ourselves uh, today is that we've been talking about these big things um, that are implications of the gospel uh, so much that it's possible, uh, if we're not careful, to lose track of what's most important, the gospel itself. And so that's what this passage is about. Um, I played soccer growing up. It's funny, I think this is the second sermon in a row. I've never given soccer illustrations, but I played soccer growing up. Uh, and as you might know, soccer is a complicated, very sophisticated game uh, with a very simple goal, uh, no pun intended. You're supposed to get the ball into the opponent's goal more times than they get it in yours. That's the game of soccer. Uh, when I was in middle school, I had a coach named Matt Campion. He was an excellent coach. He was a former Australian professional soccer player. Uh, and he was... An awesome coach. He, during practices, he would stop us and explain the most minute details of the game. He would talk about our positioning with respect to one another. He'd talk about how we could use different kinds of passes all to affect the same uh, results, how we could drop the ball back in order to regroup on offense, that we didn't always have to move forward, all kinds of things that he showed us. And the more complex things got, the more beautiful and fun the game of soccer became because we saw how all of us working together could make something really cool happen. But one thing that I remember him always doing for us uh, after every time he told us about this or that specific detail, he would always ask us the same question. He would say, now remember, what are we trying to do? And then he'd wait for us to answer. Um, and the answer was always, score goals. After teaching moments during practice, after pregame speeches, after halftime speeches, he would always ask us that same question. Now, what are we trying to do? Games weren't won because of how well we moved the ball as a team or how cool our passes were or how great that kickoff was. Games were won by the number of goals on the scoreboard. And so Matt stopped every time and taught us to look back and always make sure we were focused on what was the ultimate goal. Similarly, as we look at the Apostle Paul's words in verse 1, uh, he starts with the word now, 
the transition word, kind of calling our attention to what he's about to clarify. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Just like my coach Matt would stop and bring us all back uh, to the most important thing by saying, now what are we trying to do? The Apostle Paul stops here and says, I've, you know, after all of that that I've said, what are we doing here? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Paul's been working his way through all kinds of important implications of the gospel on the life of the Corinthian church. He's been talking about unity, been talking about wisdom, sexual purity, church organization, meat offered to idols, spiritual gifts, all kinds of things. And here he stops to make sure they're on the same page. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Something tells Paul that it's time to take a step back for a moment and remember what is of first importance. Um, if there was a title for this sermon, that would probably be at those words from verse 3. I delivered to you what is of first importance. Paul says, don't let the incidentals eclipse the fundamentals. Right? Don't lose the forest for the trees. Make sure you remember the fundamental gospel and hold fast to it. Because without the gospel, nothing else that I've said, nothing else that I will say, matters. A couple weeks ago when Taylor preached on 1 Corinthians 13, he called love, he used the, I think it's a Latin phrase, the sin qua non. Love is that without which nothing else matters in terms of the spiritual gifts. For Paul, not just with the spiritual gifts, but everything that he's been talking about, this fundamental gospel, this which is of first importance, is that without which nothing else matters. So as we look at our text, um, this is, that's what Paul's doing. We're going to look first uh, briefly at the need uh, that Paul is addressing. Second, we're going to look at how he addresses it with the gospel. And third, we're going to look at a couple of things that I think this means for us. So point one, let's drill down a bit into why it is that the Apostle Paul is writing what he writes. And let's think back for a moment about what was going on in Corinth, about the context for this letter. If you've been with us for a while, you may remember some of this. Corinth was basically like an ancient Middle Eastern version of Houston. Right? It was a relatively young city. It had been recently destroyed and then rebuilt by the Roman Empire. And because of that, it was populated by people from around the empire and really around the world. Uh, it was a quickly self-sustaining wealthy city because it was located on a pivotal trade route. And given that it hadn't been around for very long, there was a flexible social structure with a lot of room for social mobility and professional advancement. Sound familiar? Paul had planted the Corinthian church over a period of about a year and a half during his second missionary journey. It's recorded in Acts chapter 18. And after spending about a year and a half there, he knew the culture well and he knew the people well. A couple years after he left, he got reports about some of the things that were going on in the church. And then the Corinthian church actually wrote him a letter asking him a number of questions about what the gospel means for the life of the church. And so that's what he's doing in this letter. He's writing a letter in response to a letter that he had received from them asking about all kinds of crazy things. The Corinthian Christians found themselves in the middle of this exciting city of opportunity, and understandably, they struggled a little bit to give up many of their associations with the world. When a Corinthian citizen was converted to the Christian faith, they brought with them many of their, their cultural presuppositions, right? many of the things that were just part of their worldview that they didn't know any different. And we all do this to a certain extent when we come to know the Lord. And the gospel. And as we've been working through this series through the book, we've encountered many of the things that this meant for their life as a church. To give just two things, I could, I could list through everything, but to give just two things that could be helpful to help understand what, what we're talking about. First, Corinth was a, a city of great intellectual activity. Right? They were thinking people. And partly because of this, the Corinthian church had been dividing over which teacher was better or more eloquent than the other, as we saw back in chapters 2 and 3. All right, so when Paul addresses these divisions in the church, he attacks 
not just the divisions themselves, but what is beneath. He attacks the wisdom of the world. As he says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, so that, the, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The second thing that, that Paul notices and addresses that I'll mention here is because of the Greek understanding of the division between body and spirit, the Corinthians were confused in their sexual ethics. They so misunderstood their spirituality that they thought that they were free to engage in extramarital unions, sexual unions, presumably on the ground, that they only involved the body, which didn't affect their spirit. And so when Paul addresses the issue of sexual purity, he doesn't just tell them what they're doing wrong. Well, he certainly does that. He digs in and he teaches that rather than there being a detached relationship between body and spirit, there is a beautiful and intimate connection between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. As he writes in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So, therefore, glorify God in your body. So he clarifies this. There's other things I could list, but, I, but I'll stop there. Those two things, as well as how he starts here in verse 1 by saying, I would remind you, brothers, point, I think, at the need that Paul is addressing, one that many of us are probably familiar with, both from elsewhere in the Bible and also from our own experience. The need is this. The, very simply, it's not going to be a, an earth-shattering need. Uh, the Corinthian people had gotten distracted by the world around them. Very simple. They had gotten distracted from what's important by the world around them. Their association with the things of the world had led them to forget to lean on the gospel as the foundation of their lives in every area of their life. They had gotten so focused on wisdom and getting things right that they had exchanged the power of God for the wisdom of men. Their cultural understanding of the separation between body and spirit had so relegated Christ and Christianity to the spiritual realm that they didn't think that, they did, that what they did with their bodies had any bearing on their spiritual lives. And they were on the verge as we're going to see in the coming weeks, of denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. They had let their cultural background define their lives rather than holding fast to the gospel and had forgotten what is of first importance. And I think that's why these words from Paul are so important even for us today. Because if you're not aware, uh, we're in a very loud, busy, confusing, hectic culture. Brett Kavanaugh just got confirmed yesterday. Um, and wherever you line up on the debate of whether he should or shouldn't gotten uh, gotten nominated, confirmed. Uh, there's people all the way on both sides, everywhere in between, and everyone is very vocal about it. And just that one issue causes us to wonder, where should we, where should we land? Which side will we land? That's just one thing that's going on that our culture, you've got to have an opinion, you've got to make sure you know who doesn't agree with you, and you've got to place your front. And, you know, so we've got all kinds of allegiances that we're forced to make in this, in this cultural moment. And so I think Paul, when he's calling the Corinthians back to just this basic gospel, his words are very important for us even, excuse me, even today. Throughout this letter, Paul's been reminding them of what God's grace to them in Christ means for them. And here, near the end of the letter, he pauses to say, let's not assume that we're on the same page here. <laughs> Let me make sure that we all know the foundation for all of that practical stuff I've just been talking about. Here is what's most important. Let's look at how he does that. Point two, read with me, verses one and two. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's stop there and unpack this just a little bit. First, when Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, he's indicating uh, that he's talking about something that they've heard before. 
This isn't news for them. This isn't something new for Paul to be talking about either. Uh, There's nothing new, nothing hidden from the Corinthian Christians uh, that they need to search for or attain to in addition to what Christ has done for them. So Paul's just reminding them of something that they've already known. Next, when Paul says, you've received, which you've received, this means that more than simply having heard the gospel message, the Corinthians had actually received it. Paul points back to a day when they had received this message, had believed in their hearts, as if to say, look, this is what made you guys Christians in the first place. So don't move past this. He then continues to say that this gospel which they received is the gospel in which they stand and by which they're being saved. In other words, there are Christians now because of the fact that they one day received the gospel, but their faith isn't simply a one-and-done decision. It's an ongoing process. The gospel that changed them on the day they first believed continues to work in them for the entirety of their lives as they hold fast to it, clinging to it, never moving past it. So Paul explains that the gospel is central to who they are as Christians. It defines their past, their present, and their future. And I'll come back to a couple of things in a few minutes, but let's look at what this gospel is. Read with me verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul delivers to them as of first importance. This is the most important thing. Everything else is at least second to this. This is the central message of the gospel, and as he does so, he delivers both the problem and the solution that make up the gospel story. Let's look at how Paul describes it. First, the problem. Look at verse 3. Paul says that Christ died for our sins, and let's, let's not blow past this like I think we too often do. The problem that we face, the problem that Christ had to come and die for is our sins. Right? Not sin in general, not sin as an abstract principle. Our sins, my sins, your sins. You see, there was a day when all of creation enjoyed and participated in the glory of God. Mankind was the crown of God's creation. Man and woman were made in the very image of God himself, administering his reign and rule in the world that God had given to them. God had created them free, and while God had intended this freedom, of course, to be used to love and worship God, he wasn't going to force them to do so. As we read as we read in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, instead of using their freedom to choose God, they used it for just the opposite. They chose their own way rather than God's. And when they committed this original sin, they fell under the curse of sin and death, and they brought into this curse with them all of their offspring, which includes everyone who has ever lived, including you and me. Ever since then, our freedom has been li- limited We've been bound in our slavery to sin, as it says elsewhere in the Bible. As a result, we are each born slaves to our own desires. We just sang about this. We cannot help but sin in pursuing our own glory rather than the glory of God. Try as we might, breaking this bondage to sin is something that we simply can never break ourselves from, no matter how apparently well-intentioned we are. Because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and all are doomed to death and punishment as a result of that. So when Paul says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins, he's not making an idle, rote, trite statement. Based on who God is as infinitely powerful, infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy of praise, any sin against him renders the committer worthy of infinite damnation, infinite disgrace, 
and infinite punishment. That's why the statement, Christ died for our sins, is such a wonderfully monumental statement. And it's at the heart of the good news of Christianity. Christ took the penalty due to us, right? This infinite damnation, infinite disgrace, infinite punishment, and bore it all on the cross for our sake so that we might never have to taste it ourselves. But that's not it, (laughs) right? He didn't just die. It says in verse four, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. As we're gonna see as we continue moving through chapter 15 in the coming weeks, our whole faith for Paul rests on the fact that not only did Christ die, but he rose again from the dead. Why is this so pivotal? In his resurrection, Jesus testified clearly and unassailably that he was indeed the Christ, the the one who was sent by God to do this. And that God's people would know that the problem of our sin has been dealt with, as another preacher once put it. Christ was offered in sacrifice for our sins and rose again to show that he had procured forgiveness for them and was accepted of God in his offering. This is the good news of the gospel, that God so loved the world, that God so loved you and me, that he sent his son to take the punishment for us on himself. That Jesus' death for our sins was the solution to the problem of our sins, and his resurrection showed that this forgiveness has been both offered by Christ and accepted by God the Father as a finished task. Christ's death and resurrection are the very sum and substance of Christian truth. All that follows is contingent on that foundation. All that follows is secondary to what is of first importance, Christ's death and resurrection. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And listen, there are probably, we we sometimes... (laughs) We sometimes romanticize the early church and think that that's where, if we could just get back to how that was, there's a proverb about trying to go back in time. Um, but if we just get back there, they were awesome, and so we should just try to be like the early church. And there's benefits to that. I'm not, I'm not discounting. I, lo- I want us to be an Acts 2 church. I, lo- I love that. But um, chances are, when Paul wrote this letter, there were people in the congregation who checked out when he got here. He, what, think about what he was doing, right? Paul was talking about all these really cool things that the gospel means for their life for life in Christ. He's talking about spiritual gifts, talking about revelatory gifts, prophecy, tongues, healing, all these kinds of awesome things. And then he says, now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel. By that point, some of us here have been like, I already got it. Right? <laughs> Same with us. So often when we hear the gospel, we're like, oh, <laughs> another sermon about just the basic gospel. All right, I'll check out for a few minutes. Start, start working down my to-do list in my mind. I remember a story that uh, one of my pastors years ago told um, about uh, an interview he had with a senior, with, a, with an older, much older pastor who was, kind of, who was in charge of the network that he was applying to become a part of. Um, and he walked into this conversation. It was kind of like he was starstruck. He was like, oh, you're Steve. He walked in, shook his hand, sat down. And Steve, the first question that Steve asked him was, what's the gospel? And he was like, okay. And he said, I stumbled through the gospel. It was the worst gospel presentation I've ever given in my entire life. He was like looking at his toes, like, you know, just trying to, just trying to make his way through it. And when he finished, he look up, looked up. And, and in Steve's eyes, he saw tears. This older pastor who had been pastoring 
for 30 plus years, looked at him and, and said, it's better every time I hear it. I hope that that's you and me. I know, admittedly, it's not me all the time. But I hope that's you and me as we grow more and more like Christ, that if anything, this fundamental gospel becomes more and more and more beautiful every time we hear it. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to spend this time making just three observations. There's so many things that could be said about this passage, as is true of every passage. But I'm going to spend some time making three observations for us. The first thing I want to say uh, is that for Paul, it's evident that these two events, Christ's death and resurrection, are literal historic events. Christ's death is, for the most part, without question, from a historical perspective. There are certainly those who do question Christ's death and even Christ's existence, but for most serious scholars of history, the question of whether Christ lived and died is pretty much historically unquestioned. His resurrection, however, is where the road diverges. There are many people who are skeptical, this is to state the obvious, (laughs) there are many people who are skeptical of Christ's literal bodily resurrection. There are many who deny it outright. There are still others who are slow to commit to whether it is or isn't true, but they call into question how necessary Christ's literal resurrection from the dead is for Christian belief. But you see, the fact that our Savior rose from the dead is perhaps the most, one of the most basic and important tenets of the Christian faith. Christianity is not primarily a religion that presents us with a list of moral teachings, even though it does do that. Christianity is not primarily a religion that sets up a community of believers so that we don't have to go through this life alone. Well, it certainly does that. Christianity is not primarily a religion that attempts to meet the spiritual needs of individuals out of the understanding that human beings are spiritual beings. Well, it does that too. No, Christianity as a religion is primarily a story. It's a story that extends from eternity past to eternity in the future, with key parts of that history written down for us in the form of stories compiled together to tell of God's miraculous intervention with his creation. All of these stories, all of these stories converge on one person, born of a virgin, who lived the ideal life, died the unjust and necessary death that we all deserve, and rose from the dead to demonstrate not only his power over death, but also the validity of everything he taught while he was alive. That salvation, the salvation of the world is secure in him. It's a miraculous story. And it's at the very heart of Christianity. It's clear from the way that he writes that for the Apostle Paul, Christ's death, and in particular his resurrection, are historical realities. At the time Paul wrote this, there were several religious myths similar to to the stories that we hear in Christianity. Good stories about a God or a leader who lives on forever, even stories of him returning from the dead to proclaim victory. These were stories written capturing the desires of people's hearts. And they were known to be such. They were written by humans as myths to inform cultural understanding. Like a good hero movie or book today, we want these kinds of people to exist, so we choose to believe that they do. But for Paul, as well as for the rest of the New Testament writers, they go to great length to make it clear that this isn't merely a fanciful tale 
but this is real history. The desires of our hearts are found in this story. The one promised in the scriptures who would come to bear our griefs and our sorrows, bearing our sins for us, as the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. This needed Messiah has literally arrived in flesh and blood, not in myth, but in real life. Look at a few details he includes to persuade us that he's writing history. Paul mentions his burial. Christ died, and as Paul adds in verse 4, he was buried. John Calvin pointed out in his commentary on this, this letter, the reality of death is brought out more vividly by mentioning his burial also. Paul mentions that it was the third day on which Christ was raised from the dead to link it as a fulfillment of the scriptures that had come beforehand, but also to show that he, was clearly, he, he clearly cared about chronology. The whole second half of this passage is Paul pointing to people Christ appeared to after his resurrection. Look at verse 5. Notice how specific Paul is in the details in this section. He gives the appearances in order. He uses the word then to show that this is in temporal order. He appeared to Cephas, who's the apostle Peter. He appeared then to the 12, then to more than 500 people at one time. And notice this extra detail. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, of course, means they've, they've died. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's giving witnesses so that he can be fact-checked. And as he gives an account of the fact that there are these many witnesses, he, we see his concern for accuracy. He evidently has a specific group of people in mind, and he holds himself back from exaggerating. He could have said, hey, there's tons of people who saw Jesus. And, and, and that would have been a meaningless statement. But he says there's more than 500, but he even holds himself back. He clarifies, some have died, so you can't talk to all of them. But there are some who are still alive. So go and ask them. Paul wants us to know that what he's writing about, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, is real. So he's concerned about these precise details. It's history to which he is testifying that was witnessed by him and by many others. That's the first observation I would make. Paul's saying to them that Christ's death and resurrection are historical realities. The gospel is not primarily about a way of life, but primarily about a perfect life that was lived by one who died and rose again, that he might become the savior of the world. The second observation we can make is this. While repetition in the Bible might not be significant 100% of the time, uh, repetition is always good to notice because oftentimes it does point to something that's significant. Here, there's a word repeated twice in verses one and three that I would argue uh, is incredibly significant. Verse one says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Verse 3 says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. The word received is significant here. I almost preached an entire sermon on the word received, but I didn't. One thing that it tells us is something that's crucially important to our understanding of how we get the gospel. You're standing in the gospel, right? Being in a position where you're in right relationship with God is not something that is earned. It's not something that is attained to by rational assent or by discovery. It's not something that you behave your way into or practice your way into. Your standing in the gospel is not something that you obtain. It is something that you receive. I think that one of the reasons we need to be reminded of the gospel so often is the same reason that we have a hard time accepting the gospel in the first place. Right? We don't like to place our hope in something that we have received. 
Instead, we like to focus on the things that we have attained or that we are able to attain. For us to fix our minds simply on something that we've received is just that, simple. And we don't like to think of ourselves as simple or passive. We like to think of ourselves as movers and shakers, right? doers, earners. This is true for both the non-Christian, but it's also true for the Christian. As Christians, we have a tendency to rewrite this story of the gospel in our minds because it is so scandalous, because it is so offensive to who we are as human beings. Our flesh doesn't want it to be true in its pure form, so we tell the story something like, yes, Christ died for me and rose again. Gosh, I believe that. And then we start looking around at other people and, 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 and justifying ourselves based on how obedient we are, how holy we are, the things that we know. And then we start looking back and saying, man, we, st- we start to slip. And then what do we start to say? Man, I'm just, I'm just not doing good, doing, doing good enough for God. You know, the look on God's face when he looks down at me, he's waiting for me to get this right. We rewrite the story of the gospel in our heads. And the Apostle Paul knows this. That's why he writes this passage the way that he does, making it clear that the gospel is something that they received, just as he himself, the Apostle Paul, had received it. And this has huge implications. If you're in this room and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, or if you're wrestling with understanding the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose again for our forgiveness, know this. The gospel doesn't become understood as true because of rational assent or because of any work of the intellect. The gospel becomes understood as true on the basis of special inward revelation from God. The work of God in your heart and mind to make you, to call you, as the Bible says, to believe. To give an example, Paul himself had undoubtedly learned of the death and resurrection of Jesus before his conversion. He knew the facts of Christianity. He knew what Jesus' followers said about Jesus. What did not follow from this was Paul's belief, therefore, in its truth or in Christ's divinity. Those things were eventually made true for him by a special, particular revelation. And this is central to the Christian faith, that this is something that God makes true in our hearts. And while Christ literally appeared to Paul as an apostle, we see in Paul's words here that his proclamation of the gospel to the Corinthians somehow, by God's grace, was effective in inciting belief in the Corinthians. So these were people who didn't see Christ literally raised as the apostles did. And this, but this was true belief that the Corinthians were able to reach. It wasn't just in the facts alone, but in the whole gospel account of what these historical events signified. Paul is pointing to a real moment in which this happened. Paul preached and they believed. Even though the Corinthians didn't literally see Jesus before his ascension, they knew him just as literally as the apostle Paul did. They received him just as meaningfully as the Apostle Paul did through the preaching of the word as it was made effective by, the, by God himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me point out to you something that Jesus himself promises in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus invites each of us to pray and ask him to reveal himself to us. There's a story in Acts 10 about a man named Cornelius who was not a Christian, but he was praying, asking God to reveal himself. And so God sent him a preacher. God sent him the apostle Peter to teach the gospel and and Cornelius and his entire family, his household were all saved. 
while you will not be able to on your own learn, listen, think your way into faith in Jesus, he is able to nevertheless use your learning, listening, and thinking to reveal himself to you. Think about the Apostle Paul himself. Verse 10, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Something that commentators locate in that phrase. When Paul says, I am what I am. If you, if you recall the story of Paul uh, uh, meeting the, the risen Christ Jesus, Christ didn't preach the gospel to him. He simply said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting to me? And Paul knew immediately what that meant. Because all of his life up until that point had been a study of the law, a study of the Messianic scriptures, a study of everything that was supposed to take place, and all that Christ needed to do with Paul was say, this is me that you're persecuting. And that was it for Paul. You never know which words or thoughts God will use to cut to your heart and make this story true for you. So ask. (laughs) Simply ask God to do it. If you're a Christian in the room, take encouragement in this as well. For one, as we seek to evangelize, to share our faith and share about the gospel, uh, knowing that the truth of the gospel is something that's received means knowing that the pressure is not on us to convince people of the truth of Scripture. All right, I've heard many proofs that people have written for why the Bible should be accepted as true, why we should understand that God exists. And while those things do serve, uh, serve to stir the pot and raise questions, they do little to answer the fundamental questions. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think that it's good to seek answers for the questions that we and others have. We should continue to think through those things and share those things with one another and with people who don't know the Lord. But we should also know that often they do more good in reinforcing the faith of people who already believe than igniting the faith of those who don't yet believe. And this is, I think, quite encouraging. Igniting faith in God is not something that you and I are responsible for. God has promised to take care of that part. All we are to do is to love him, love others, preach his gospel faithfully, and watch as he bears fruit in the midst of our faithfulness. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, And I'm convinced that's one of the things, one of the key things that made him such a bold evangelist. God, in his grace, helped Paul to see that this message wasn't his own message, but was one that he had received. It was a message of Christ that Christ was going to make effective in his hearers. It was Paul's to proclaim and God's to reveal to the inner hearts of his hearers. So Paul explains that the gospel is a message that is received. Knowing that their tendency is to lean simply on all of the to-dos of what had already been written, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they should first rest in what has been done for them. The gospel that all they have to do is receive. The third observation I would make for us this morning is this. Receiving the gospel changes everything about us. Stay with me. In the post-enlightenment era, uh, we've begun to engage with a dialogue about the truth um, the truth of the gospel, and as a result of our thinking that really all that is important is our rational assent, what we think. Um, as a result of this, we tend to focus less and less on the practices of what this truth means for the Christian life. And we need, need, we need to know that this is historically new. The ancient church wrote at length about the patient process of soul care, real practical disciplines of spiritual formation through which God works in our lives to make us look more like Christ. This was central back then. And today, uh, it's become more of an elective. Obedience 
is optional, something to get around when my schedule get around to when my schedule's not too busy. Paul, I think, calls us back in his words here. Once we get the idea that the gospel is received, we've got to get that first. <laughs> we've got to get that the gospel is something that is received. But for Paul, we must not stop there. Look back at verse one. Paul explains that the gospel, when truly received, past tense, is something on which the Corinthians stand present tense, and by which they are being saved, provided that they hold fast. Both of those are present, ongoing tense. That's a tense that I made up that is probably more colloquially helpful than the actual tense. Present, ongoing, something that's true today and will, must continue to be true in the future. There's, there's much that could be said about each of these phrases that we don't have time to get into, but suffice it to say this, clearly in view for Paul, is that life in the gospel is more than simply believing the right things. In fact, at the end of verse 2, he adds uh, to this reminder of the foundation of their faith a hint of warning. Talking about the gospel, Paul says, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Not only does Paul say that the gospel is only effective if it is received, but he includes here that the gospel is also only effective if it is held fast to. Historically, this has been uncomfortable for Christians to talk about, and it sounds like it's a little bit uncomfortable for us even today. Because it can be misunderstood as saying that God saves you and then leaves you on your own to hold fast to him or else. The real idea here, though, is, I think, central to understanding this text as well as many others through the Bible. Right? The Old Testament, the part of the Bible that tells the story of Israel before Christ, God repeatedly calls his people to trust in his promises and to hold fast to the covenant of the law that he had given them, or else they would be cut off. The New Testament, the part of the Bible that 1 Corinthians is in, that tells the story of Jesus, the ministry of his apostles after his death and resurrection, several of the apostles echo the importance of holding fast to your faith in Christ, with Jesus himself saying, Matthew 24, that the one who endures until the end will be saved. The message throughout the Bible, and the message here, is that simple belief is not what saves you. It is both belief and holding fast to the gospel which saves. Did you know that it's possible to believe in God and not be saved? Look at verse two. Paul said, you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He doesn't say, unless you thought you believed and were wrong. He doesn't say, unless you believed the wrong thing. He says, unless you believed in vain. In other words, it's possible to believe in God in vain, to believe God and have it count for nothing. It says in James 2, verse 19, that even the demons believe in God. Simple belief in God is not enough for salvation. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way. He said, a faith which works not for purification will work for putrefaction. That's a word that means decay. Unless our faith makes us pine after holiness, this is still Spurgeon, unless our faith makes us pine after holiness, it is no better than the faith of devils and perhaps it is not even so good as that. A holy man is the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of Spurgeon's quote, we hear good news. A holy man is the workmanship of the Holy Spirit. Listen, all the things that I've just said, I believe, are true. It's true that simply believing in God will not save, that believing in vain is possible, that only the one who endures to the end will be saved, and that one will be saved if he holds fast to the word that was preached. It is true that holding fast is a requirement for the Christian life. But here's the thing. 
Let me explain it this way. If you think about it, God also says similar things about belief. Belief is required. And look at what, what God says, God's word says about belief. John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say everyone's not going to perish and everyone's going to have eternal life today because of what Christ has done. It says whoever believes in him. Belief is required. Romans 10 verse 9 where Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are big conditional statements that mean if you don't believe, (laughs) excuse me, if you do believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you, you aren't. So belief in the death and resurrection of Christ is a big deal. But as we've just looked at it, Paul explains that this gospel is something that is received, given, to God, given by God to believers through special revelation. In other words, God does not leave people to their own devices when it comes to belief. Saving faith is not the result of works, but it is a result of the grace of God effecting this change in the life of a believer. Belief is required, and thanks be to God that he is the one who ignites it and raises it to fruition. He is the author of our faith. Similarly, when Paul explains that the, gospel, the, the Corinthians need to hold fast to the gospel lest they believe in vain, which is something that appears throughout the Bible, it's made clear elsewhere that God does not leave his people to their own devices when it comes to holding fast either. Just a few verses later, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. In our passage, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. How? Right? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, God's grace towards me, Paul says, was not in vain because I worked hard, but really it wasn't me working, but God working in me. So holding fast for Paul in his own life is a result of the grace of God. Furthermore, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul gives a similar call to the Christians when he tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a serious call. And then he immediately follows with this. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, it is God working in you. Jesus, God himself, is both the author and perfecter of our faith. It's clear that belief in Jesus' death and, re- death and resurrection is required. And we're told that God in his grace gives us this belief, a belief that we receive. It's also clear that enduring, holding fast to the end, holding fast to our faith is required. And we're also told that God in his grace through the power of the Spirit gives us the power to do so. <laughs> when we were dead in our sins, unable to pay the debt that we owed to God, Christ came to die for those sins and rose again to secure our forgiveness. And just as God does not leave us to our own devices when it comes to dealing with our sins, likewise, he doesn't leave us to our own devices when it comes to sealing our future with him. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. God in his grace has made a way for us to be back in right relationship forever and ever. He grants us belief in the gospel by his grace and upon our receiving it, as it says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God has declared it to be so, brothers and sisters, and so it is. It's for this reason that we are to work hard for the sake of living our whole lives in submission to Christ and leading others to do likewise. That God's grace is a gift doesn't neglect the hard work that must be done on our part, the hard work that God invites us into. 
If you think about the stories that Paul just that the, 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 that go along with with the list of that Paul made of people that Christ appeared to after his resurrection, Paul appeared first to Peter. What did belief cost Peter his entire life? He was martyred for the sake of proclaiming this message. Martyred upside down because he didn't decl- he didn't see himself as being worthy of being crucified like his like his Lord and Savior. James, the other named disciple in this list who Christ appeared to. James also. So James was the brother of Jesus who had mocked Jesus during his life. Right, mocked the gospel, said, there's no way my brother's the savior. But then at this moment, something, something incredible happened. Christ appeared to James by his grace after his resurrection and turned him in an about face. James, who later wrote the book of James in the Bible, uh, was a mocker of the gospel, turned into a herald of the gospel by the grace of God alone, and he lived a life of hard work ending also in martyrdom. Right? The, the cost of following Christ is higher than we might admit sometimes, but the reward is eternal, and we will be with him forevermore when we heed his call and live life working hard, like Paul said, Chapter 15, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. God, we read this story of these many people um, in the days, the 40 days after Christ's resurrection, before his ascension. We read the story where Paul lists off some of the people that Christ appeared to, and we think, man, you really literally appeared to them. Thank you, Lord, that you continue to appear to us. You continue to appear to us through your word. Your power is just as effective and at work today as it was back then. Even more so, I think it was your son who said, Lord, (laughs) that even greater things than these shall you do in my name. And so, Lord, we, we ask for your presence. We ask that you, God, who reveals yourself, would reveal yourself to us anew this morning. That you would hold us fast, even as we seek to live lives holding fast to you and the word that we've received. Let this word not return void in our lives. Let our belief not be in vain. That is only possible by your grace, in your grace alone. So we ask for it. We bless your name, Lord. And it is in that name, the name that is above every name that we pray. Amen.